Well, good morning and welcome. Good to see you all here today. Thanks for joining us as we gather together uh, for worship. If you're visiting with us today, there is a card in the pew in front of you called a Connect card. And uh, we'd love for you to fill that out so uh, we can know of your attendance with us, but also ways that we can connect with you, ways that we can serve you. There's also a place on there for prayer requests, and we'd love to pray for you this week. Uh, but there's things going on in your life that are of a concern to you. And so please fill that out. You can drop it in the offering box uh, in the back. Well, as we begin our time together, would you stand with me as we hear the Word of God read as our call to worship in Psalm chapter 107. The first uh, nine verses read like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert, in desert wastes, finding no way to the city to dwell in. Hunger and th- hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by the straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Well, this past week, our church sent uh, nearly 40 Uh, campers to Lake Ann Camp. That's uh, ages, well, grades uh, 4 through 12. And uh, four or five different programs that Lake Ann runs simultaneously uh, on a given week. And so we uh, we had a great group go. I had a good, um, I think they had a good experience from what what I've heard so far. And uh, we've asked for a couple of them to, to share. And so I think we have five, is that right? Five students are going to share, so I think at this time, you all five can come up. Hi, my name is Luke. I was um, in the program of junior high this year. Um, this year, God really challenged me to become a better man of God and to um, just be more loving and kind to others. And not you, you don't have to be this big, tough guy all this time. You can be nice and tough when you have to, but you can also be kind and loving when you have to. That's what God really challenged me this week and through my life to do. Well, I guess for me, it was going through, we were doing challenging cor- challenge courses, and I was one of the two leaders of the group, and we didn't finish it, and so I just learned how to be a better leader and to listen better, and that's what challenged me. Um, I was challenged because we kind of talked about um, David and Saul and how they both like did a lot of sin, but Saul took the wrong path going downhill and David took the right path. And lately I feel like I've been distancing myself from God, so this week I'm going to focus on trying to become closer to God and focus on making my goals higher and being more like a Christian. So, yeah. I was in Fresh Start, and I was challenged to uh, trust everybody who was in my yurt. When we went through like the spider web that we couldn't uh, touch the web, we had to go over, and so we kind of crowd surfed through it, and we didn't fall. We had to trust to like not fall down when we went through. Thank you. 
Um, my name is Paige. I was in senior high this year, and something God challenged me with was um, not being afraid to initiate conversations when it comes to evangelism and just knowing that God has a plan. He already knows how the conversation is all going to go, so just I need to take that step and trust him and not be afraid to share my faith. So, yeah. My name's Chris. I was in the junior high program this week. Um, I'm serious. Some of you are laughing. Maybe you didn't know that. I actually was. Um, and uh, it was a good time. I enjoyed uh, being there. One of the things that I value, uh, having so much camp background uh, in my life uh, and now being a youth pastor, is that uh, I enjoy and I value our students going and hearing from somebody else other than our teachers, other than our pastors, um, in part because it's important for all of us to know that uh, you know God uses a whole lot more people than just the two of us on a Sunday morning, all right? And, uh, and we're, we're honored and, and grateful to be here to, to be used of God in this fashion. But I love having them go away and listen to other people. Uh, so that was kind of the hard part for me because then we had like eight junior hires and they all had to listen to me again, right? And hopefully, uh, you know, God kind of broke through that wall of seeing the same bald-headed dude, you know, week in and week out and then having to listen to me seven times in a row throughout the week. I think he broke through some of that. Uh, and was able to uh, to use that. Uh, it was incredibly grateful. One of the things for me that I really enjoyed, and I told uh, our junior and senior hires this during our little Sunday school glory bowl uh, this morning, uh, I have that mindset that when you're at camp, you're at camp, right? And so when Julie and I and the kids are walking around, they want to, like, flock to us, and I'm just so naturally like, get away. <laughs> Go be with your cabin. Enjoy camp, all that's a part of this week. You get us for the rest of the year, all right? So go be there. Um, but uh, when I was in a counselor meeting, Julie was sitting there on the, on the rocks with uh, the kids. And then our students from, like, all the programs, because Fresh Start was back, uh, all kind of just naturally piled together around Julie and the kids. And they were all just reminiscing and sharing about their weeks. And just my first thought is, scram. <laughs> but as I'm looking at it and thinking about it and talking with Julie later, I'm like, you know what? That is a gorgeous sight. Our kids all want to be together. They like each other. And some of them are siblings, right? They like each other. They, they've been at camp for so long, they just want to be with the familiar. They want to share some of their stories. And they just, it, it warmed this pastor's heart to see his kids all wanting to be together. And, and it was just lovely. And then eventually Julie did shoo them back to their program, so it's just good. But, but uh, just seeing that was, was a, a joy uh, for this pastor's heart. So thank you, parents, for uh, signing up and sending your kids to camp. Hopefully you had a, a little bit of a relaxing time uh, here. Uh, I would uh, encourage you. I think I handed these out to most, if not all, the parents. Uh, if you did not get one of these yet and you're planning on sending your student next summer, um, please sign them up before September the 6th. Because if you do that, you're going to get the cheapest rates possible, and we will not have uh, somebody uh, waiting on waiting lists uh, if you take longer. I know we had some students waiting on waiting lists, one that didn't find out until the Sunday before the Monday they actually went, that they actually got in, and that can be a stressful time, like, am I in, am I in, am I in? Sign up in September, you'll be in, all right? Uh, and then on the back is some information as far as uh, how that goes financially. And uh, just so that you hear it one more time, sign them up 
if you're worried about the finances, don't because they have a hundred percent money back guarantee. So all the way up until the Sunday before they go, if you need to pull them out because they can't go because they broke their leg on the trampoline the night before, uh, they will give you every dime back. So so there's no fear of of losing any any money by signing up so incredibly early. All right, just peace of mind that they're gonna they're gonna get in. God, would you prepare our hearts this morning to accept your word? Would you silence in us any voice but your own? And that hearing, we may obey your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And if you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm chapter 73. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 484. 484. You can answer this to yourself, but maybe you have looked at the world in the recent past, or the not-so-recent past, and you looked at those who are doing evil and thought, they seem to be getting away with this. There doesn't seem to be any consequences for these actions. Uh, the, the, the wicked seem to be um, going on about life with no, with no recourse. It is the age-old question of, of why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why do they seem to flourish? Why do they seem to triumph while the righteous seem to suffer? They seem to languish. They seem to struggle. Why is that? We can look at, well, we'll look at this psalm this morning, but Psalm chapter 37, Psalm chapter 49, Job chapter 21, Jeremiah 12, Habakkuk chapter 1, all dealing with the same concept. Why do the wicked seem to prosper while the righteous seem to suffer? And if we were to look only at the world's, and only look at the, what, what seems like the prosperity of the wicked, we can be led to have feelings uh, of envy. We want what they have. Right? I, I want that kind of freedom. I, I want that kind of do whatever I want and don't have any, any consequence. Or discontentment. I wish I had something other than what I have, right? Maybe it's not exactly what they have, but you want something else. You're discontented. Dis- disillusionment, feelings of disappointment, feeling let down. Like, this is the life that I have to live. This is what I get. Uh, these are some of the emotions that we can find here in chapter 73. The author of this psalm is Asaph. Asaph was a, a musician, a Levite, uh, a musician in the tabernacle. First Chronicles chapter 6. Asaph was well acquainted with the things of God. So when we read his, his reflections here, when we read his, his statements, we're not reading it from someone who doesn't know God. We're not reading it from someone who is antagonistic against God. We're not reading it from someone who doesn't believe in God. He's not atheistic in his, in his understanding or in his theology. Rather, what we're reading is a crisis of faith. It is a, a, bio, a bio, biographical reflection 
Right? So this is Asaph writing about his own crisis. And we can see that he, he writes about the crisis post-crisis, right? It's not in the moment. He's reflecting. It's, it's a re- retrospective psalm. So he has, he has gone through something, and now he is recounting that here in Psalm 73. He wrote this psalm, we could say, on the other side of the struggle. An Old Testament scholar and theologian, Walter Bergman, sees how the Psalms basically describe three experiences that men have with God. Uh, He means the Psalms in general, not specifically uh, Psalm 73, although we'll see some of this in Psalm 73 as well. But he talks about these three experiences, and they are orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. By orientation, he means there are Psalms where the psalmist sees God rightly. He He understands what's going on. He, he gets it. There are psalms where there's disorientation. There's an imbalance. There's a distorted view of God in the world. God stops making sense. They're looking at the world and it doesn't make sense to them. That's disorientation, we could say. And then there's reorientation or, or a new orientation. When out of this disorientation, uh, there's an emerging of, of an understanding, a new perspective. It's coming out of a fog, you could say, into seeing God and the world more clearly. Well, here in our psalm this morning, we're going to see the disorientation and the reorientation. We see how this author navigates his own disorientation, moving towards a new orientation, and how we too can move from this struggle to triumph. First, we see in his disorientation, we actually do see a moment of belief, even in the midst of the disorientation. Look at it in verse one. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Uh, the, The author starts by rightly stating that God is good to Israel. God is good to his chosen people, to those who are pure in heart, those who are clean, those who are loyal to God. He's not talking about perfection here. He's not talking about sinlessness. He's talking to people who are faithful to, to the Lord. So here Asaph begins with what he knew to be true. That's where he starts. Though we're going to get into his confusion, he starts with saying, it's true that God's good to Israel. Like, I know that's true. Like sometimes we say, I know that's true, but then there's, there's something else. Like there's something that's, that's uh, contrasting that. There's something that's calling that into question. But even in the midst of, of our questions, Warren Wiersbe writes, never doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. And so here in verse 1, he has this, this, this uh, nugget of belief And he's moving into how difficult, how disoriented he is, and yet he's holding on to this one truth. This one truth that God is still good. He's going to look around and he's not sure about it, but he knows that God is good. Never doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light, Warren Wiersbe. But as much as he states that belief, then he admits his doubt in verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped. So in verse 1, we we see this this, uh, statement of belief. And now here, we're we're admitting, he's admitting that he had nearly, nearly um, 
First, it's almost stumbled, then nearly slipped. So he's saying it didn't happen, but it nearly did. Right? This, this near spiritual disaster, this slipping or this stumbling is referring to his spiritual condition, his spiritual life. We see why he, he stumbles in just a moment, but the disorientation here leads to doubts. What he knew to be true is is called into doubt when he doesn't understand. Doubt is not necessarily the enemy of faith. It is not. It is not the same thing as unbelief. Doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. Warren Wearsby is helpful here. As he explains that doubt is, is the struggle to believe, but not being able to do it. I can't. Whereas unbelief is the refusal to believe. It's I will not believe. I will not surrender. I will not trust God. So here what we see is not him struggling with unbelief. He's struggling with doubt. He was in a crisis of faith that nearly led to the abandonment of his faith. And why? Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogance and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here it is. Why, Why is he doubting God? Why is he doubting that God is good to Israel? Why is he almost stumbling? Why is he almost slipping? Why? Why is he disoriented in this way? Because of the arrogance and because of the prosperity of the wicked. The first thing that happened was that he envied, right? When he moved into disorientation, what did he do? He envied. Or this is another word could be jealousy here. It's a discontent a discontentment by someone else's possessions. One Bible dictionary says, to have a feeling of ill will ranging even to anger based on a perceived advantage or a desire for exclusivity in relationship. Have you ever felt that way? Right? Our envy can be seen in big ways and in small ways. A child can be just as envious as an adult and vice versa. This, uh, this sense of discontentment or, or, or envy, we're going to use those terms kind of synonymously this morning, can be subtle. It can be very subtle in our life. And we can justify it really easily. We can justify it with something like, we deserve. I, I deserve better than this. I, I deserve what they have. I don't deserve this whatever this is, right? God, God, what are you doing? How how can they have that and and I have this? Maybe you've seen someone else and thought, I want what they have. Why do they have, fill in the blank, and I don't? This isn't fair. This isn't fair. Discontentment often arises because of our sense of fairness, right? When your child is, is, Giving a, uh, we, let's, let's imagine that we give our children uh, desserts and we give them pieces of cake and one gets a bigger piece than the other and they say, that's not fair. He has a bigger piece. Why? Because you think you deserve the bigger piece, right? The discontentment arises from me thinking I deserve something. And so here, Asaph is looking at, at the wicked thinking, I deserve that. <laughs> they don't deserve to, to, to get away with that. Look, look, look at my life and we'll see that in just a moment. But this is where Asaph is. And he goes on then to describe what he perceives as the prosperity of the wicked or his description of their prosperity. Uh, Again, in verse four, for they have no pangs until death. And they're just living it up. (laughs) 
They don't have any problems. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They, they uh, are not in trouble as others are. There's, there's no consequences. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence as their garments. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, if you were to read that description... And if that's true, you would probably be like, yeah, right? Right, Asaph? I, I feel the same way, right? They, they do whatever they want. They're at peace in life. They, they flourish physically. They're, they're, they're violent. They're proud. They're, they're corrupt. They defy God. They get away with their wickedness. They avoid pain and they enjoy, and they enjoy their wealth. How, how does this make any sense? Right? That's what Asaph's saying. How does this make any sense that they get that? That's not what they should get. Psalm chapter 1 tells us that it's, it's the righteous who are to flourish. It's the righteous who are planted like a tree by the river who, who yields forth fruit. It's, not, it's the wicked that perish. It's the wicked who are like the, the chaff that, that are blown away. So, so how, how's, that, how's that work? That seems like a contradiction. I heard a quote this week from a pastor who said, don't believe everything you think. It's probably good, isn't it? Don't believe everything you think. Here's Asaph looking at the world and making conclusions, thinking things based on what he is seeing. His conclusions might have some merit, but they're not actually right, are they? He's making conclusions based on looking only at the wicked. We could go back through these uh, 12 verses, particularly verses 4 through 12, I should say, and see how many times he uses the words they, their, or them. I'll save you the counting. 15. 15 times he uses that. What, what's he doing? He is absolutely focused on the wicked. He's absolutely looking at someone else and looking at their life and making comparisons and conclusions based on them. That's all he's, it's singular, singular focus. This fixation then leads to disorientation. He doesn't see it clearly. He goes on to make a statement of regret in verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. All in vain I have kept my heart clean. And washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So Asaph's saying, I'm looking at that. And then I say, well, what's the point? What's the point of pursuing purity when I get nothing in return? Right? If sanctification only results in being stricken all the day long and rebuked every morning, what good is it? It's vanity. Don't worry. Don't bother. The wicked, are, the wicked are living the good life, man. And we're over here trying, and it's not working. But this involves believing a lie. And the lie is that if we don't see a return now in doing the right thing, then it's not worth doing. 
It's a lie that says, if I do for God, God should then do for me. One commentator says, inadequate religious understanding results in confused values and shaken faith. The rewards of the righteous, the rewards of righteousness and the consequences of sin may not be evident fully in present circumstances. Wealth and power are not tests of worthy, worthwhileness of faith in God. So just because right now it doesn't look good doesn't mean it isn't good. If you are only looking at this life to determine what really matters, you will come to very different conclusions than God comes to. And here is a low point for Asaph. And he is admitting this, right? This is his own reflection of himself. He's admitting that, that I looked at this and, and then I come to this statement of regret about the way I've lived my life. He's owning his, his self-pity. He was discontent with his life because of what he saw, because of what he felt, because of what he thought. But even in this condition, look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, meaning if I, if I, um, if I said, I'll say all the things that I just said, if I'll say that out loud, if I'll tell other people that, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What's he saying? Even in the midst of his doubt, he is, he is wrestling with his faith, meaning that he's not ready to go public with this doubt. He's not ready to, to cast aspersions on God to, to, to other people. He doesn't want to, in this case, betray the generation of your children. That is, undermine or mislead others. He refused to inflict God's people, one writer says, with doubt. Now, this is very much unlike what we see today, isn't it? Uh, today, we, we, we shout our doubts to everyone, right? Uh, we, we don't consider how this is going to affect anyone else when we, when we send that tweet or write the blog post or post a YouTube video about our, our deconversion or our, our deconstruction or, or whatever it is that would cast doubts on the others. We, we don't think of any of that, of how that's going to affect other people. But what we see in ASAP is not someone who's running from God. We see someone who's wrestling with God, who's asking the questions, who's saying, this doesn't make sense to me. But even though it doesn't make sense to me, I don't actually want to mislead other people in this. I want to understand. I want to understand what I can't understand right now. He didn't move on from God in the midst of his, his doubts. He struggled. He wrestled. He wrestled with his own perceptions and with his own understanding. And this brings us to the second part of chapter 73 as Asaph then moves from disorientation to reorientation. And here's this great breakthrough for, for Asaph, and we see it in verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. This is troublesome. I can't do it. I'm looking at this, and it doesn't make sense to me. I can't do it, what, verse 17, until. It seems a wearisome task. I can't understand it when, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Here Asaph is admitting that, that he didn't understand. But before he, he came to some final answer or final conclusion, he went into the sanctuary of God. Asaph was, was doubting. He was envious. He was discontent. And what did he do? 
He, he didn't look to other people to confirm what he already believed. You know, you can do that today. You can do that really, really easily today. You, you click on Google, and Google will tell you whatever you want to believe. You know that, right? You know that, that pain you have in your right shoulder? If you think it's X, Google will tell you that it's X. You'll, you will find the article that tells you what you want to hear, right? It is out there. It's confirmation bias. You look for the thing you want to believe. You can, be, uh, you can confirm what you already believe, but that's not what Asaph does. Asaph doesn't look for someone to affirm what he already believes. What does he do? He goes into the sanctuary of God. Rather than going on with his doubt, rather than going to someone to, to affirm him in his foolishness, in his in ignorance, he goes to the house of God. What does that mean? He goes to worship God. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 17 says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. David Platt writes, seeing God rightly changes the way I see everything. When we see God rightly, we see everything differently. We see God rightly not by looking at the world, not by looking at the wicked, but not by looking inward at our self-pity or our discontentment, but by looking to God in worship. And this is one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons that the public worship gathering is so important why it matters. Left to ourselves, we do not see things clearly. Left to ourselves, we are Asaph looking at the world saying, I don't think this makes any sense. I can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank. And we, we move along in that, in that thinking and it leads us to nowhere good. It leads us to further and further disorientation. Asaph's disorientation did not keep him from worship which was, in the end, the very means of his reorientation. You see that? He's disoriented about God. And instead of moving forward with the disorientation and avoiding the worship gathering, avoiding God, avoiding the scripture, what does he do? He goes to God with his doubt. Imagine that. Imagine instead of running from God with our doubt, we went to God with our doubt. What if we, we were honest with God about the doubt? What if we were genuinely saying, this doesn't make sense to me, God. Help me understand. What if instead of, of going to the world or going to someone else to affirm us in our unbelief or, or, or in our doubts, we go to God and ask genuine questions. Satan would love nothing more than to keep you and me from the means of our reorientation, from the means of transformation. Those being corporate worship, prayer, confession, scripture, one another. All of those things God uses to reorient us to the truth. To remain in the condition of discontentment will never lead to reorientation. It won't. Something else has to happen. God has to intervene and here, Asaph makes himself available to it by coming to the house of the Lord to see clearly. Asaph was reoriented to see or to discern their end, the end of the wicked, that is. Their, their final destiny. And he did it by looking to God. And this is where he gained a new perspective. And he does so in, in verses, um, verses 18 through 20. We can see this 
as he changes the emphasis of his talk, not from they, but to you. Look at it in verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall in ruins. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. What's, what's happening here? Asaph is, is changing his fixation. Once he was, he was fixated on the, the wicked, seeing them as, as the, the evidence of what is true. Now he's shifting his eyes to the Lord and saying, actually, there's more to this story. There's more than what I see. Imagine that. And what I understand now is that the God is actively working, that God's justice will be done. He's looking at, at God, not at himself. The future of the wicked is not good. Their end is coming, regardless of what it may seem like today. The end of the wicked is judgment. He lays it out there in verses 18, 19, and 20, and it isn't good. The scriptures affirm this. We talked about Psalm chapter 1 already, but in 1 Corinthians chapter, 9, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul writes this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The end of the wicked is death. It may look good now, but the end is death. One commentator says, the righteous on his worst day is far better off than the unrighteous on his best day. Asaph was waking up to this truth and he makes a humble confession of his error in verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Speaking about his relationship with God. His condition the condition of his soul, his, his, he was embittered. The, the inner man, right? Our condition of our soul before God affects how we interpret God and how we interpret the world. Here, by his own admission, Asaph is embittered or he is sour. He's pricked or he's pierced in heart. Verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. Or he, was, he was stupid. He was senseless. I was like a beast. I was like, acting like an animal to you. But God used even the struggle, even the doubts of Asaph to mature his faith. Even this condition where he, he, he knows he's not right with God. God in grace and in patience uses the struggle to help us move towards maturity. Your doubts are not too big for God. You must take them to him, not to get him to align with you. We don't take our doubts to God to get God to align up with us. You know, that is not what prayer is. Sometimes we act as though prayer is getting God to do what we want him to do. It's actually the very opposite. Prayer is actually about us getting in line with God. Some of us use prayer as though it, it is a wish list to God. God, help me with. God, fix this. God, change this. 
what if it's actually God changed me? What if it's actually I don't, I don't understand this rightly? I, I, need, I need to see more clearly. What if it's fix my, my pride, fix my envy, fix my discontentment, help me to align with you? And finally, Asaph expresses confidence in God's faithfulness, a confidence that you and I can have as well. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand. God is with him. Asaph is understanding that God is with him. He's, he's holding him. He never leaves him nor forsakes him. Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Then jump down to verse 39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Asaph is continuing with the Lord. You, the Lord, hold my, Asaph's right hand. God is with us and he is for us. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. He holds us together. Not only that, Asaph goes on in verse 24 to say that, that God guides us. Uh, you guide me with your counsel. Asaph uh, did not figure this out on his own. Right? He was disoriented. He was confused. He didn't know which way it was up until he went to the sanctuary of God. Then what happened? God guided him. God counseled him. Same is true for you and me. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit that indwells you, teaches you, and guides you. Who is Jesus? The way, the truth, and the life. How do you know which way is up? How do you know what's true and what's not true? Only through the one who is the truth. The rest of verse 24 says, And afterwards you will receive me to glory. Asaph is, is seeing that God is, is, is with him, that God is guiding him, that God will one day bring him to glory. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does that tell us? The best is yet to come. Asaph is looking at this thing and says, Afterwards, after this is all over, you'll receive me to glory. If you are a Christian, the best is yet to come. If you're not a Christian, this is as good as it gets. If that bothers you, there is hope. You actually can know that the best is yet to come too. You actually can know that there's hope beyond this life. There's something greater yet to come. If you would come to God through Christ, who is the way, the truth, and life, if you would come in repentance and in faith, you too can know the future hope of heaven. You too can say afterwards, God will receive me to glory. This life might be filled with suffering for you. You might not prosper like the wicked. You probably will not. But the prosperity in this life is, is so short in comparison to eternity. Play the longer game. Finally, almost finally, Asaph writes in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In heaven or on earth, nothing else compares. There's nothing I desire than you. Right? We just saw up in verse 2, he's saying, I'm looking at the arrogant. I'm looking at the envy. I'm looking at, at the prosperity. I'm envying that. What does that mean? He's wanting that. 
That's the disorientation. And now here in verse 25, he's saying what? There's nothing else I desire. I'm coming out of the fog. I'm being reoriented to the realities of life. That the wicked perish. The righteous will one day have prosperity like no other. Even though our physical condition, physical condition fails, God is our strength and our portion forever. Look at verse 25. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion or my inheritance, my reward forever. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary says that God is our dearest treasure. That's what Asaph is coming to understand. Seeing clearly means we understand that the physical is temporal. We will die. And the spiritual is eternal. That this is not the end. Asaph does end here in verse 27 and 28 with this summary. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Asaph finally saw clearly that the judgment is coming. The question was not if it's going to come. The question is, it is going to come. There's no, there's no ifs anymore. We might not know when, but we know that it's certain. That is, the destiny of the wicked, they will perish. But that's not all he says. He concludes with this, this word in verse 28. But as for me, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. But for me... He says, it's good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge and that I may tell of all your work. Where once Asaph was doubting God, now he's delighting in the presence of God. The nearness of God is his good. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11 says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is the nearness of God that it is in the nearness of God that we see clearly, that we emerge from the, the disorientation to be reoriented to who God is. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Psalm 73 is an account of this reorientation, of this transformation of Asaph, of this new perspective, from envy of the wicked to joy in God's presence, from discontentment with his life to confidence in what is yet to come, from struggling with faith to proclaiming the goodness of God and his works. Asaph envied the wicked. We can envy the wicked. But you know what else? You can envy anybody. It doesn't have to be the wicked. We can fall prey to envy of anyone who has any sort of perceived, um, that we perceive has something that, that we want. It is not exclusive to the circumstances here in chapter 73. We may look at, at other people's lives and compare our lives and end up wanting what they have. It's not new. It's not new. Think with me through your Bible. In, in the book of Genesis, we see Cain. What does Cain want? He wants the blessing that Abel received. He desired it. What does Jacob want from Esau? He wants the, the birthright and his blessing. What does Saul want from, from David? He wants the popularity that David had. What did the disciples want when they overheard James and John trying to get the best position in heaven? They wanted the best position in heaven. What is that? That's envy. That's discontentment with what we have. It's looking at someone else and saying, I want what you have. 
we can do it more easily than we know. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, reads as follows. But ungodliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, <clears throat> with these things we will be content. But for those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This discontentment leads many away from the faith. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. May we this week by grace find our contentment and our satisfaction in the good news of Jesus, in the nearness of God our Father. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for truth. We are prone to believe untruths. We are prone to believe things that, that, that categorically aren't true. Emotionally, we can be caught up in it. And here, Asaph is looking at the world and considering things that are not true, are not eternally true, are not fundamentally true. God, would you guard us from, from believing lies, from seeing partial, seeing things in part? God, would, as best as we can in this life, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, in hearts to believe, would you help us this day to understand that the destiny of the righteous, that is the one who has the righteousness of Christ, is eternal life. Endless joy in the presence of God with the Son. There is nothing to be envied in the world. God, would you help us to believe that? Would you help us to truly believe that in your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And in light of those truths, in light of the end that is coming, help us to live now with a sense of contentment of what you've given to us, the life that you have in front of us. Give us the faith to follow you. Help us to trust you. For those who are, are doubting today, those who are, might, might even be in a crisis of faith this morning, God, would you help them to take their doubts to you? Would you help them to take their thoughts and their ideas and compare them not with what they see in the world, but with who you are and what your word says? And then give them the courage to follow you. Follow you who, who, are, who are good and kind and gracious. You who have made a way for us to one day be with you forever for which we say thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God.